everybody and welcome this is the noko moto podcast episode 120 something that might sound weird but we'll get to that real soon this is the noko moto podcast the best smelling motorcycle podcast in northern colorado or your money back i've been i'm your host moto gp i've been described as Rush Limbaugh, if you wanted to actually hang with him, with me is your co-host Swiggy, yep, who has been described as Ellen DeGeneres, undergoing gender reassignment surgery, and you actually want to hang with. Okay, Thank so <laughs> I'm feeling I'm slap happy. It's been such a long day. Okay, so starting this episode table of contents, we are going to do corrections and emissions which we have three of corrections and emissions is becoming awesome thank you so much everybody keep holding us accountable then we're going to do best worst bike like we always do swiggy you have things to tell us about the honda highness i have a lot to say about that okay and then when we finally get to it swiggy will read the emails probably drunk so Let's start off our corrections and emissions. I'm going to need to use my phone here because some of these came into me by text. Okay. They're contacting you directly. Well, Bruce and Junkie. So Bruce went over my helmet. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good one. Okay. So, okay. So Bruce Phillip, host of This Motorcycle Life, one of the greatest motorcycle podcasts to ever hit the internet. Uh, sent us this and i okay i have a feeling things are really going to start heating up between us and phil okay so this is going to go back a few weeks we were calling the gear change system on our scooters twist select and then phil said you can't call it twist select it's called grip shift so that was the correction you decided to double down on twist select and I threw an offhand comment saying, Hey, this will probably make Phil really angry, but I always thought grip shift was the thing for mountain bikes. I didn't research that. I didn't Google that. That was just what was in my mind. Bruce being the hero that he is having our back texts me grip shift longstanding trademark of SRAM for mountain bike shifters. Like since the 80s or 90s, you win. <laughs> is that trademarked in Canada? Honestly, I didn't. I still oh. haven't Googled it. <laughs> I, I'm just taking Bruce's word for it. But um, yeah, so kind of a slam dunk for us right there in this argument. <laughs> nothing against mountain bikes nothing against mountain bike shifters hey you know uh, uh uh push bikes pedal bikes are are wonderful wonderful things but you know we talk about powered vehicles on this show so you know i i, I would rather not use use mountain bike uh terminology 
if if given the choice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Phil just snapped a pencil. Like <laughs> Phil just snapped a pen, right? <laughs> and it was like one of those like Bic gel pens, and he actually got it to snap. <laughs> okay. So uh, other correction here. Let me bring it up. So he says to us, oh my gosh, I said a lot more to him than. So he says our next episode, this episode should be episode 122. That's just, he's actually okay. paying attention to our episode numbers okay. way better than I am. And so this is episode 122. I just, I just kind of went back, pulled an episode, looked at like what the, the number was through our system. And I mean, we have something like, I think this is actually going to be the 129th recording, but this is the 122nd episode in the format. So there we go. So this one will be properly numbered. And I'm on the fence about changing and correcting the numbers of the past two episodes. Okay. And finally, I think you have an email brought up for a third correction omission. I do. <clears throat> okay. So that's from Richard, right? Yes. All right. And uh, Richard says, uh, fantastic to have you back. You were missed. Thank you. And he says um, the BMW R1800 Cruiser uh, is now priced in the UK at 19,000 pounds. And they are in stock. So you can't actually go to a dealer and buy one. Um, but he also agrees with us that why wouldn't you just stick with the GS or some other similarly powered existing offering or the moto guzzi which was where all of this started because it's such insane value like you know i was saying that i haven't seen anyone pay like 11 to twelve thousand dollars for a new one i have been seeing frequently people buying them with less than less than ten thousand miles from anywhere from like four to to eight grand Anywhere in that anywhere in that zone, and as I thought about how I need to bring this up on the next episode, I was getting caught up on Cleveland Moto, and one of them just bought a Gucci California for like six and a half thousand dollars with like less than ten thousand miles on it. Like that isn't even just here; that is coast to coast, anywhere in the country. These bikes are basically free for what they are. I. Just just look at one, imagine your drop dead price, and then then find out the actual price, and it will probably be lower than your drop dead price for the bike. And so you really have no excuse to not buy one if you're looking for a big cruiser bagger thing. I will just add on um, that Richard also said at the end of the email um, that they had to cancel the Isle of Man TT <coughs> uh, challenge for the Manx Knievels. Uh, but they did just do, uh, yeah, Lands, the Ma- they did Land's End to John O'Groats, which for those of you who are not familiar with it, that's essentially the most Northeastern part of the UK 
to, I may have this backwards. It's the northeasternmost point to the southernwesternmost point. Yeah, that's correct. I can't remember which is which. I really should know this, but well, it's famous for it's very, very famous as a cycling route as well. Yeah, this is kind of where the do your back tire in one ocean and your front tire in the other kind of starts. Yeah, yeah. So and also that oh. they are now. Oh, they said they um they raised twenty seven thousand pounds uh for McMillan Cancer Care, and that they are soon planning the twenty twenty one event. They were thinking about doing a U.S. ride, so I'm I'm really into that idea. They wanted sweet. to do a Route 66 kind of thing. That would be awesome. You know, like the the route that we did, that 1500 mile route from I 70 through Moab through the Painted Desert back up through 185, wouldn't be a bad. I'm not saying that whole thing, but that includes some parts of Route 66. I guess Arizona is not really the best parts of Route 66. Well, if it's a, if it's a charity ride, it should be a route that involves people. You well, know? does it in, in in the as long as you've got someone with GoPro cameras and stuff to sort of document the thing, does it really need to be in in the view as long as you're sort of broadcasting it out every day? This is the so. rare sort of thing that social media is actually designed for. This is the sort of thing you post that doesn't make you a douchebag. Yeah. Anyway, well, well, we could revisit that full email or whatever later on in the show. Let's move to best worst bike because we're getting. Look at this. We're getting to best worst bike in like ten minutes. This is we haven't done this for a long time. Okay, so here we go, everybody. This is the part of the show where we do the best and worst bike in the world this week. If this is your first episode, you're a little bit of a noob. I'm going to break it down for you. Swiggy and I, every week, each pick a motorcycle. One's going to be the best bike in the world this week, and one is going to be the worst. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a bit of a surprise. And you might be floored at what we choose. We might pick your bike. We might pick your friend's bike. We might pick your your arch nemesis's bike and, you know, kind of kind of throw it up on the side of the argument that you would prefer it wasn't. But that's just how life works. You know, you need to deal with reality on reality's terms. That means the world doesn't work the way you think it should. It just works the way it does. And it's up to you to be a grown up about it. And, you know, just just keep in mind as my fish told me the other day as I was tripping balls, there's no crying in motorcycles. Solid. So, Swiggy, you have, I think I've got it straight without any confusing it this time, you have worst bike in the world this week. I do. Yes. Okay. Are you ready to reveal it? Yes. Well, that would be great if I had the sound effects brought back up on my phone. Do-do-do. See, this is this is the unedited shit that you guys are getting. All right. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is? The Honda CBR600RR. But I love this bike. You're the only person. I know. Look, I know that... 
I know that the it, it's the it's the least powerful of the 600s. Although the gap on this one to the other bikes isn't as big as it is with the CBR 1000, but I've always loved I've always loved the CBR 600, and I and I love how stupid super sport motorcycles look and how the styling is crazy and out there. I've always kind of liked that the CBR 600 RR is the least stupid looking one. So here's the thing. I love the CBR 600 RR as well, but that's not the problem. The problem is that nobody else likes this bike. I will agree with you that nobody else likes it. In fact, maybe what's putting it in the horrible category is that we do like it. Only fucking weirdos like us are loving this bike that is meant to be sort of universally adored. If, If it isn't sort of revered and respected by the masses, then it's pointless. Well, especially because of the category that it's in. You know, if you take any... Any parallel twin bike, you know, any V, any like small displacement V twin, any of the other kind of sporty bikes, but that aren't competing, then it's like, oh, yeah, it's got four less horsepower and a little less torque. But, you know, it's a thousand bucks cheaper and you can find them all day on Craigslist and they're easy to fix up. You know, they fit into your life. But this is a super sport. This is a bike that's all about counting grams and caring about how good the forks are and caring about the seating position and how much power it's making, how high it revs. This is meant to be a thoroughbred. But it doesn't win in any of the stats that matter in the class. It's not the cheapest. It's not the most powerful. It's not really the best performing. I mean, they're in World Supersport, but only because Honda feels obliged to put a team out. But in 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 a series like Moto America, nobody wants to ride a CBR. Oh, it's Persona Non Grata. Yeah, right. Now, even just looking at the price, you know, considering that it's the least powerful, it's eighteen hundred more. You know, at eleven hundred, eleven thousand eight hundred, it's almost two grand more expensive than a six three six. Okay, yeah, but the six three six is the most absurdly <laughs> cheap cheating. motors. It'd be more fair to compare it to the ZX six RR. That's true. Or just the regular ZX6R. No, no. The 636 is the ZX6R. Yeah, so the ZX6RR. But it's what still this four, should be compared to. But it's still $400 more than a GSXR600. And it's only $300 less than an R6. Now, in this category, if you're let, let's, let's be honest, most of these bikes sold are not being sold for racing. That's just a reality. And most people will never get more. Most of the 90 plus percent of these bikes will never get to more than 80% 
of actual horsepower output on the motor because people still just can't handle it. It actually takes some skill to do, you know, except maybe on, on a nice back roads, straight piece of road, you know, one time in, in the bike's life. Well, you can do it on the interstate. Yeah. But the point is, all those things as a street bike don't really matter. But what does matter is that you feel cool while riding it. Now, you and I can feel cool riding this bike. Yeah. But everyone else, a lot of people who would want to feel cool riding the bike like this are just going to go for the R6. Or skip to a Hayabusa or an S1000 double R or something. Yeah. Something that's going to stick out. An H2R. But yeah, even within even within just the 600 class, yeah, they're probably just going to go to a 636. Right. And I cannot blame them. Exactly. So, you know, besides... Hardcore Honda fanboys. There isn't really a big market for this bike. I mean, it might be good if you're, you know, especially at this time, this might be a good bike to buy if you are just coming across a desperate Honda dealer during the current economic situation who just needs to unload a bike. And you can score a sweet deal on it. But outside of that, like you know, in in stable times, in a stable economy, who does this appeal to? It, on every metric that you measure, you know, it's not even the fact that it's a bad bike, because it's an awesome bike. It's really great. But it doesn't matter how awesome you are if in every single direction you can go in terms of appeal that somebody outclasses you. So I think there's one way that Honda could save this bike. Because Honda can't not have a homologated 600 for racing, right? Racing is the whole reason that Honda exists. Well, that's the thing. This bike is not a passion project. This bike is an obligation. Right. So what they need to do is sell is completely stop selling this bike in a street legal form. I think what they need to do. Well, they can't do that. Because it's a race bike. But it has to be homologated. Well, that just, no, homologated means they have to make a certain number of them. It doesn't mean they have to sell them in a street legal form. Uh, I believe it depends on the series, but generally homologation means available to sell for the public. That's okay. why you can buy a V4R. Well, the, well the, what they should do is what they do with the V4R and what they do with the CBR1000 RRR, which is it's something you can buy but the public doesn't buy it, right? Now, the thing is... Are you with, like, Ford GTR status where you have to send a letter in? You have to write a letter saying that why 
you would be a good ambassador for Honda and why they should sell you this for $20,000. No. See, so, so they sell a lot of R6s and R1s because they are the cheapest bikes to go from showroom to race spec, right? There's so much support and aftermarket and whatever for those bikes. What if Honda just built all of that into the original bike? It comes set up like you want for the track, already track competitive, and if they could figure out a way, and I think Honda is large enough to do this, Yamaha or Kawasaki may not have the manufacturing power and volume and and worldwide worldwide reach to make this happen. But I think Honda's big enough they can. I think Honda could make this bike for like $29,000 or some stupid amount where it's a fuck ton of money, but race teams buy it. And by the time they're done, it's like five grand cheaper than buying your R6 and making it like world super sport ready. Just don't even pretend that the public wants it anymore because that's all they're doing. They're pretending that the public wants it. It's an obligation. Just make it available to everyone. Make a bunch of them with the most premium components and then supply you know, a, a fairly reasonable stock and affordable stock of replaceable parts. And because you're Honda, you can just kind of like send supplies of them out to raceways when you know major events are happening too. So if someone, if race teams could buy these bikes and know that major components like forks and, and rims and whatever will be, you know, then the actual race parts that they want will be available you know, at major world racing events like world superbike rounds and shit, I, I think they could save it. But as a bike that the public wants, you're right; it's a disaster. So you're basically saying give it, give it the triple R treatment. Yeah, give it the triple R treatment, and I think the 600 class is more approachable than the 100 than than that class. So I think I think that triple R treatment class makes even more sense. Like, yeah, in fact, even take the CBR 600 double R's that have already been made and try to sell them, and just create a CBR 600 RRR, and then when you're done selling the 600s, just let it die. Also, put the wings back on the fairings. Yeah, if if you put the triple R winglets on the six hundred. No, I mean the 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 wing decals across the fairing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like the um, that was done best on the um, the F four I. Yeah, yeah. The F four I with the wings. Put that on the side, please. And don't give us like the weird, like implied wing that's on the Repsol Honda. Give us the real wing. Yeah. So essentially, it needs. Although to having be- said that, this this year's model with the red, white, and blue is pretty strong. The 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 RRR red, white, and blue. Oh, it's good. Okay. So I guess in summary, make it justifiably exclusive. Yeah, don't make it expensive. Make it mind-boggling expensive. <laughs> and, and and in a weird way, it might it might work. Okay. T- take the strength that it take take the weakness that it's the most expensive and turn it into its strength. Well, it's technically not the most expensive. For the 600 class? Well, the R6 is $300 more. Oh, okay. But 
I feel like reputationally, brand wise, image wise, it well, it's, it's closer to race ready. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like this has been a good re- rehabilitation. Uh, yeah, this has been this has been a good inter- intervention. <laughs> Honda, you might be wondering why we invited you here. <laughs> okay, so are we ready to go to best bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay. I don't know about other weeks, but the best bike in the world this week is the Moo Glide. Mm, pardon? All right, let's bring it up. Do, 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 do. Okay, let's see. bring it up. Yeah, you just Google it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck it up. So the Mooglide, the Harley Davidson, specifically the 1994 Harley Davidson FLSTN, otherwise known as the Mooglide. Yes. So what are we looking at? This is so Harley Davidson FL. So it's the it's the it's the big frame, right? This is the the road glide frame. Or sorry, road king frame. Mm-hmm. It's a soft tail. It's got the Evo engine. It's in many ways basically a road king. Well, sorry, it's it's a it's a Harley Davidson heritage soft tail, is what it is. But it is a Harley Davidson heritage soft tra- uh, soft tail in the greatest trim ever. So it's largely black and white. It's got a very sort of unique saddle style seat. That's it's just a slightly different shaped seat that you normally see on these bikes, and the seat is covered in cowhide. And. <laughs> It's an um if you're not super duper familiar with Harley models, it kind of looks like a Road King missing the windshield with with um with a cowhide seat. But it's so much more with with the leather bags, the black leather bags, the uh the tank with the the black sides and the white. The whole thing is black and white kind of cow themed. And there's uh, Moo Glide is not an official name. That's just what people call it, the Moo Glide. It was just this version that they did for a year, maybe two. I think it might have even just been one year. So it's so okay. Um, let let's back up a little bit. So I think '94 is the year for this. It, so think. Um, this is kind of peak Harley. This is this is when you've got the uh, the the Fat Boy is, is in full swing as a new bike, right? You know, you got Arnold's from from T two rocking the Fat Boy. Although that was like ninety one or something, but like it, you know, everyone's th- that's what's in everybody's mind when you think Harley Davidson, the big fat cruisers. It's not so much the baggers yet. It's not so much the uh, the ultra classics. And the ultra limiteds and the CVO models, it's it hasn't gotten to you know forty fifty thousand dollar bikes yet. We're still in like twenty five to twenty eight thousand dollar bikes. It's it's ridiculous. It's getting more ridiculous, but it's not completely over the top. 
Harley Davidson is still the great household name. It's still respected. It's still number one. And they're like, you know, Buck Owens is still alive. So let's put some fucking cowhide on some seats, <laughs> right? And in this day and age, I don't this this is just a particular bike that they made in a particular trim that I believe has held up unbelievably well. Because when you in an age where the Milwaukee 8 exists and even you and I swigs admit that that's a wonderful engine that makes wonderful power, right? Well, this is the Evo. This is 1340 cc's, I think. Um, yes. So this is the 81 cubic inch Evo engine. So this is like the Sportster engine that they still make just blown up bigger. Right. right? You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the, the 1200 Sportster is great, but it kind of runs out a little too soon. Well, this has got a little bit more to it in the horsepower, but it still maxes out at 5,000 RPM. It's still an engine that if you're not between three and 5,000 RPM throws a fit, but it, but you know, you're, you're making mid sixties horsepower. It's, it's just got a little less torque. You're dealing with, you know, 90 foot pounds of torque instead of 110, 120. So just understand that you'll pull away roughly the same. It's just going to kind of, it's just, it, you're just going to mellow out at like 75 miles an hour and you just need to deal with that. But when you're on a Harley from 1994, there's no pretense of really caring how fast it goes. Right. Yeah. You don't actually do, you know, 75 miles an hour on the highway on a bike like this for any appreciable amount of time. That's just not what it's for. Yeah, yeah, we've still got, um, you've got disc brakes and it's an Evo engine. Say what you want about the shortcomings of the way the Evo engine makes power. It's probably Harley Davidson's most reliable engine ever still. Well, we'll find out soon. We have found out though. There's tons of these things still around. I think a lot of these engines are faring better than the twin cams, to be honest. There was not as much. I mean, there was a lot of Harley upselling and stage two and whatever with this kind of crap, but not nearly as bad with the twin cams. With the twin cams, the packages and the upselling really went to the next level. Like, here's the best thing about this Harley, right? Harley, for the last five years, has been doing a lot of this ain't your dad's Harley. Well, this is unapologetically your dad's Harley. Yeah. Right. And in a rare case, that's a good thing. This is hardly at their peak doing what they did best. It's still carbureted. It, you know, it's still totally push rod. It's still totally air cooled. It's not even oil cooled heads. It is in every way an actual Harley Davidson in all of the classic senses and one of the very last. Right. Like it's odd that it says heritage because it really is like throwback in every single way because it's kind of from an era that Harley still was 
absolutely refusing to to innovate in any single way whatsoever. It's amazing that it has a front disc brake. Right? That is the <laughs> most advanced thing about this machine. Otherwise, it's a single front disc as well. Yeah. Otherwise, it's barely like it's 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 hard to find a way it's any different from like Elvis Presley's Road King, right? What I really like about this is this may be a rare case of an actual, you know, shared memory in the Harley community. Right. Because every every you know, Harley's always been really big on, you know, modding your Harley and swapping parts out and customizing it any which way you like. But this is like the I it's so iconic to have that strip of cow leather down the seat. You can't really fuck with this that much. Oh, yeah. Well, this is one of the rare instances. This and like the uh, the Sturgis model are ones that you rarely see. I mean, people will change the pipes on them and that's about it. Otherwise, they really leave them stock because, well, they actually hurt their resale value when they've been customized. You have right. to just keep this as the model as it was. And that's what makes it special. Right, but there's also something behind the cow leather, and there's a cultural meaning to it. But it's also just kind of wonderfully whimsical in a culture that yeah. puts skulls and blacks out everything. Yeah, it's when a boomer closes their eyes and pictures a Harley Davidson, this is what pops into their mind, right? Not some hell's angel, not some weird hipster who has ideas that the Dynaglide's the greatest thing that ever happened, not some uh, who knows poser, not some dentist, just just when a boomer who grew up loving Harley Davidson, you know, the true faithful, you know, Harley faithful guy, right? Just loves it because it is, because it always has been, closes his eyes and just imagines the ideal Harley. This is kind of what pops up, right? Mm-hmm. And and in that way, it's very pure. It's not necessarily pandering or 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 you know obvious um, like you know trendy marketing or or whatever. It just kind of I don't know. It it just sits nicely with everyone. I think. You you say to someone, oh, a Harley Davidson with a cow seat, and you get grinces, you know, um, uh, grimaces on people's face and winces and stuff. But then you show them a picture, and everyone's just kind of charmed by it, right? It's it's not aggressive, but it's definitely got a little bit of a king of the road vibe. I. If there was a reissue of this, uh, people would go bonkers for it. And it's not like you're they aren't still cranking out Evo motors as well. They could just take like the Sportster engine molds. They could make a 1340 again, like big twin. They could just use the modern soft tail frame, right? 
They could put, of course, fake, but you know the cowhide up the strip. They could make a soft tail, one of the heritage soft tail, um, you know, moo glide again, and I think people would go for it. But like, put the old engine in it that people will love. Slap fuel injection on it. Easy to do. Make it meet emissions. Go for it. Very easy to pull off. Not expensive. Make it affordable. You can you can achieve a lot of the looks instead of having it have crazy paint. Make it with I don't know. I, th- there's ways to do it cheaper, and and still achieve the same thing. If Harley Davidson, if you're just going to go for this weird legacy exclusive model, um, I think you could do worse than just bringing back one of these. Hell, you've tried enough stupid ideas. How about one that people actually want? Reissue a Sturgis and reissue this, right? You've tried everything else. I don't know. Maybe go back and play some of your greatest hits. Mm-hmm. So do we have any other interventions to issue this episode? <laughs> well, I mean, Harley Davidson's just fucked anyway. They won't listen to anybody. They won't even listen to themselves. So, you know, every other week someone's got an idea of something else. I don't pretend that them bringing back the Moo Glide is an actual answer or something they really should do. It's really at this point... It's just funny to keep suggesting things that Harley should do because Harley's not going to do anything in their own good interest, no matter what. I might as well tell Harley that they should move all their manufacturing to Mars, right? It doesn't fucking matter. It's true. They're really just not going to see a single plan through to completion. Right. Probably for the next 30 years. They're, I don't know. Which may be an interesting topic another time. But, but in I'm the meantime, if you have the opportunity to buy a Moo Glide, I highly recommend. There you go. Okay, I recommend we take a quick break. Okay. And then get right back on it. And just like that, we're back. So. Apparently, everyone and their barber has been discussing, theorizing, late night agonizing over every single detail and spec, theorizing when it might come here, price comparing, and just masturbating all over the Honda Highness. Yeah. Your thoughts, Swigs. Well, some people have still do believe it or not not heard or have no idea of what this machine is so i think you should go through exactly what it is then describe the hullabaloo and then break everyone's hopes and dreams okay so the honda highness technically has the title of cb350 And it's a new bike being made in India, essentially as a competitor to the Royal Enfield Himalayan and other more street-styled and dressed versions of Royal Enfields. 
So this is Honda competing with Royal Enfield in India. It's what the bullet should be. Yes. Now, it's not a CB350. In fact, it has less power than a 1968 CB350 because it's a brand new Indian-made uh, 350 single-cylinder air-cooled motor. Well, hold on. Before you move on, I mean, we should really double down on the description here because it's not just that it's an air-cooled 350 Honda. It's a single cradle frame, just like yes. the old CB350. Uh, it, it It's not spoked wheels. It's mag wheels. It's a basically flat cafe seat. It is traditional style forks that look identical to the old CB350 forks. It's a chrome front fender. It's a press steel Honda CB looking gas tank. The it, tank is a tank. The tank is a tank. It's round. It's round non-digital gauges. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's turn signals on stems. It's a, you know, modern, but still just single high, low beam, regular round headlight. It's a rear, uh, is it rear painted or rear chrome fender? Um, it's rear chrome. Okay. There's some brackets that look a little bit more modern on it, but it's got side covers that look like old CB 350 side covers. I mean, it is, it looks more traditional than a, than a, a triumph Bonneville. It looks more traditional than the current Royal Enfield bullets. I mean, it is old school sixties Honda all the way. It is as retro as the SR 400. I think that's a good comparison. Put a pin in that. Yes. There's a reason I brought that up. Just, just so people really know the, 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 the turn mirrors, I'm uh, sorry, the rear view mirrors, the the clutch and brake handles, it's all super duper like late 60s Honda. And for that reason, I think it's getting a lot of buzz. It is. But it's all a lie. It's all divorced from reality. Because this is what's happening in the English speaking world. The English-speaking world will never get this bike. This bike is being made in a factory outside Delhi, which is like 400 miles from the nearest port. This is a bike being designed as a flagship product for the Indian market. A country of 1.3 billion people out of a subsidiary of Honda that is entirely Indian-owned or indian based that will probably never export this bike now we've been we've been tricked before you know especially with bikes like the sr400 which really was marketing itself as this retro styled bike but with modern components 
and didn't really live up to specs and the price is too high even at like seven thousand dollars but at least you could go into you know, if you live as long as you don't live in the middle of buttfuck nowhere you can still essentially go into a dealership within 20 miles of you and see an SR400. None of these will ever set foot in America with an American VIN. Won't happen. No matter how excited you get about it. I think now you should explain sort of the the motorcycle internet's obsession with this what what they're saying what they're trying to predict well i don't think they're predicting anything i think it's all a gigantic scam of people who are trying to steal your attention the same way that the instagram uh cafe racer scene tried to three years ago i think it's ridiculous now, that's not to say that there might not that there might be other bikes like this. That there might that maybe this engine will make its way into other bikes. And we may see a classic line of bikes come out of this. But it's unlikely because of the fact that it's made in India. Now how to put this? Um, I want I want to uh, put it in. Uh, just let people know that the name Honda Highness, which is a fucking home run of an of a of a gray market bike, right? That's where the Indian <laughs> market bikes go. Like this is. Just such a just a home run. It's not actually highness. It's H apostrophe ness, like highness. Um, and it's I, I I do love it for this is the perfect thing for the Indian market because it's so self aware, right? Because the Indian market is about traditional motorcycles, but. Uh, it's very Bollywood. It's very Bollywood. It's also very cutting edge at the same time. It's aware that it's taking Hollywood special effects and doing it on a budget. Like it, you know what I mean? It's yeah. It, it's such a perfect name. It and again, the the Honda Highness was is a great would have been a great name for the game. Is this a scooter? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The other thing I will say is that, you know, this bike, um, we actually did get some specs out of Honda and out of this 350, this bike is only making like 21 horsepower. You also have to keep in mind. For a single, that's not that bad though. That's a lot better than Enfield is doing even with their 500. That's true, but that's kind of a low bar. Well, yeah, but that's the direct competition. It is. Because there is a 350 bullet and a 500 bullet that this is in direct competition with. And it looks like it's just going to fucking destroy. Well, th this is the other angle is that like old men are jizzing their pants over this bike that they will never, ever see in person. But even if they did, even if you could buy this for like six grand. 
These wouldn't. They wouldn't. You could put it in front of them right now and be like, five grand. You gonna buy it? And they wouldn't. Well, they wouldn't if they actually wrote it. Because, you know, we talked about with the Bonneville and how when um, when the Bonneville was brought back, it wasn't the 650 that people had. It was the Bonneville that they remembered. Yes. It rewrote history. This bike has less horsepower and less torque than the original CB350. Yeah. It's going to be an utter immediate disappointment. I think there's a Honda CB750, a Honda CB650, 550, you know, inline three, inline four, classically styled sort of thing that Honda could bring back. You know, kind of like a W800 sort of thing, but, you know, go back to the old school inline four. It'd have to be liquid cooled with fake fins on it. I think there's a way they could do fuel injectors on it, but kind of put those little metal silver covers that extended off the air box to give it a retro look mm-hmm. and not have to do fake carburetors. I, th- you know, there's a bike like that, that old men in America will buy in huge numbers, but it's not this one. You're right. It's not this one. There, there is, there's a rewriting history Honda CB throwback bike. You know, the, the CB 1100 came so close, but just missed some of those notes of authenticity. It, it, it was too big. You know, people thought, well, all the old CBs I remember were like smaller. This is like a, a CB 1100 is like giant fucking bike. Well, the new CB 1100 is, but it's not really all that bigger than an old CB750. <sighs> They're both gigantic. The C- the CB750 is is always has always been way bigger than you remember. The CB750 was big boned and husky, but the CB1100 is just straight up big, you know? Like like the CB750 is very stocky. It's very chubby, but it's not like, you know, you know, like I said, I I I famously <laughs> compared it to Adele, right? But like the CB eleven hundred is like, what if Adele was six two, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pre weight loss, Adele. Yeah, you know, what if she was six two? You know, instead of that amazing register, was like, right. hey, Swiggy, <laughs> <laughs> you want to go for a ride? <laughs> Anyway, so back on to the highness. Look, I can't accuse anybody else of having weird fetishes. <laughs> this is <laughs> truer words you've never spoken. <laughs> but as weird as my bike fetishes are, they're real. I have backed them up with actual purchases. And you know what? If you can get your hands on something like this, let your freak flag fly. 
But all I'm saying is we all got into writing for a reason. And it wasn't purely fashion-based. It was about living in reality. It was about consequences and experiencing that. It was about actually doing something rather than just gushing over a fantasy. And you are being robbed of your attention. This is being... This is an intellectual scam that's being played on you. Yeah. Well, well only wait, by YouTube, though, because Honda's not trying to trick you. Honda is not doing something that's very retro Honda. They're actually doing something that is very, very current and Indian. Right. It, no, it's everybody around Honda. And as far as India goes and Honda, this is a masterstroke. This it is. is. This is as genius as the original CB350 was to to America, this is going to be that kind of amazing thing to India. No, no doubt. And in its own way, appreciated as an Indian cultural thing is absolutely wonderful. Yes. It just makes no sense for the geography, the culture, the history, and the future of America or Britain. It makes no sense. Yes. So I will just round this off by saying just stick with what you can attain, what's real, what you would actually like, and what you would actually buy, rather than let a whole bunch of discussion and waste your fucking time on something you'll never see that you could never buy and that you would never want. Just be real. Yeah. I, I think, I think maybe some of our listeners may have thought we would take some sort of weird legacy fraud argument through the middle of this. Like Honda was trying to rip off their own legacy, but again, no, because this is, as I said, something very, very current and Indian and, if you see that, if you and all you have to do is look at what else is on sale in India to realize that, and and for, and there's those little things that give it away, like the the Indian trend of the uh, the wire um, leg guards on the back. Yeah, right. They sell this with that as an option, which is such a bizarrely weird british thing i wonder when that's going to make it into like other custom motorcycle cultures like is or is bo suzoku going to start adding those on right <laughs> like who knows uh but it's it's so easy i, I get how it's easy to want this to look at it and go oh my gosh it's like an old CB350 if they just brought them back and they had chunkier tires. It it almost looks like a custom bike, strangely. Okay, so one more thing, which is you may think, oh, well, well, yeah, okay, so it's a single whatever, but, you know, it's essentially a new CB350. And I say no. There was actually a really great uh, Ryan F9 video about a month ago that was kind of covering this. 
And if you look at a lot of old like 350 and 400 twin motors and compare them to their modern single cylinder counterparts, it's the same or less power. Air-cooled or liquid, doesn't matter. It's This is something that I feel like that a lot of people aren't really appreciating. Oh, yeah. Th- this is why... Okay, so... We don't remember, America does not fondly remember Honda singles. We remember Honda twins. Yes. And we remember Honda fours. Because when you get multiple cylinders, they are greater than the sum of their parts. You get more power for multiple cylinders in the same displacement. It's it's increasing returns. Why do you think Honda even considered selling and produ- mass producing an inline six, right? Why did Benelli do it and other companies, right? Because that was the trend. That was how you were getting more power without more displacement. And it was expensive, but the metals were cheap. The metallurgy wasn't that complicated, the manufacturing process was sort of cheaper than than it is today, and it just made sense economically to do it. It was a great way to improve power. Honda was genius enough to do it with reliability, and that was their fucking genius. When everyone else was just making boring V-twins that hadn't been updated since the 1930s, Honda was like, hey, we're making parallel twins and we're making inline fours. Well, this is where the inline four was born. This is the genius of the inline four. Right. The inline four is not the most power, you know, per kilo of en- of engine that you can get. Well, at eight to 12,000 RPM it is, but. <laughs> well, no, no, the point is that it's not. It's not the most horsepower per weight. It's not the most fantastical motor you can possibly have. V4s are a better configuration. Okay, that's true. But you can have a single, you can have one or two molds that you shit out 10,000 motors in a week. In and your factory. molds for all the the pistons and the valve components and everything are still shared and yeah it's all on a line it's the same it's the same piston rods it's the same valve heads it's the same everything across the entire motor we and the benelli in line six was just a honda 550 motor with two more cylinders added right on. yeah it's linear it's it's duplicated parts it's it's a so manu- five hundred motor, not yeah. the five fifty. It's yeah. a manufacturer's wet dream to not have anything unique to duplicate and cop. It's essentially a copy and paste motor. You just you just have to make a new mold for the jugs. Everything else is well. I, yeah, you have to make a different crankcase cover. But yeah, it's you can yeah same same transmission can go in it all those things yeah when you're doing unit construction it, well hell it extrapolates like, out much easier than going from a v twin to a v4 well it's like um ssr benelli uh made an inline 4 600 
by essentially just welding two 300 twins together. Right. I mean, there's more engineering involved, but essentially it's still 90% the same parts. Uh huh. Yeah. So, you know, you look at a, uh, a new uh, Honda CBR 300, and the F9 video covers this where, well, today you have much better metals, much better cooling. You can really squeeze that 300 single for everything it's worth, but that comes at a cost too, and it's only still barely better. Than- I would argue it's not better. <sighs> and with the liquid cooling, it is, but... In terms of reliability, oh yeah, uh, but but in terms of ease of manufacturing and everything, the old air cool twins, yeah, especially for the time, amazing, amazing. So the the idea that this is a twin might seem retro cool, but it's actually super budget As and single, nothing else, mean. right? It's not cool that it's a single. Because that's very un-Honda. Well, yeah, that and it's actually less powerful than a 50-year-old air-cooled twin. Oh, of course. Well, this is air-cooled as well still. Because, you know. yeah. Anyway, yeah. So the, Hon- the, the new Honda Highness CB350, not as cool as you think it is. I, it's not bad. It's not even that it's not cool. Well, yeah, it may be cool to you. You may think it's awesome, but it's not real. It's not attainable. Even though it's technically like $2,500. And no matter how it will many never YouTube come to videos you. are made of it yet, yeah, it will never be for sale here. Ever. And even if it was, you wouldn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Let's take a little break here and then decide what we're coming back with. Okay. So on the fly, Swigs has another topic for us before we do emails. Yeah, let's talk about Joe Roberts. We need to talk about Joe Roberts. Now, ultimately, we will probably have like four episodes of content just talking about motorcycle racing. But it's a weird year. Everything's crazy. And I feel like it can wait. I think we need to wait till all of it's done and just do a big season wrap up of everything. Maybe. No, I feel like we can... can. Every single round has been so fucking insane, it could be its own episode. We have to condense it to a roundup. Uh, maybe. There's no way to talk about all of it. It's too big. It's too big this year. That's true. Well, let's let's talk about just Joe Roberts and Moto2. Because this is a racer near and dear to my heart that I have been... Mine too, but the Darren Bender effect is strong with Joe <laughs> Roberts this year. So that's not true. It is, but anyway, back. Let's back up. I don't know if Joe Roberts has crashed this year. I know he hasn't at least one round, but just let's back up for for people who have forgotten or not freshened up on 
where Joe Roberts has been the last couple years and how this year is dramatically different and how he is the great Yankee hope. No, he is, he's not the great Yankee hope. Okay. How we want him to be that. No, he's the vanguard of the next generation. It's true. So Joe Roberts is a Moto America super sport champion Mm -hmm. who made the jump to Moto 2. And he made the jump to Moto 2. Wasn't he in Red Bull Rookies Cup as well? Uh, he might. I don't think so. No, no. He was a, he was a Moto America Super Sport Championship uh, champion, and he made the move to Moto Two. And when he made to the mo the move to Moto Two, it was not pretty. He didn't have a very good team. He is an American rider in a European circuit. He really didn't have a lot of support and it kind of showed and for the first year he was essentially last or second to last or crashed out in almost every single race in 2012 joe roberts was in red bull rookies cup oh i actually did not know that interesting cool so anyway in the current in recent history, it was not pretty in uh, Moto2 in the 600 class. And even in the first year of 750 of the... Of the... Triumph 765? Of the, uh, yeah, of the 765 class, it wasn't that great either. It was it, heartbreaking. It was <laughs> crushing. Except for like the except for the times you could just blissfully just not even be aware he was in the race because he was so far down. Yeah, it was so it was a couple of years where he got the most media exposure because of the five seconds it took to acknowledge that he had crashed. Yeah. It was rough. But Joe Roberts Stuck with it. He stayed in. He kept going. Transferred teams. This year, he got into the uh, American Racing Team. and Weirdly not American-based. Yeah. And he what was got, it before? Like Swedish racing or... I can't remember... It was some. Other, it was a team called some other country racing team. <laughs> Not super important, but the point. Is, the the important thing is that he got John Hopkins to come over and coach him. Right. Yeah. the The management behind the team things shifted, and a lot more money came in. And Joe Roberts has a sort of uh, across the pond, semi British, semi American uh, background. And so does John Hopkins, and so do we. So we went, oh my gosh, the, like here we go. This is this is this this following this this fanship was made to be. We've got this team with this coach with this weird this weird cross Atlantic ownership. We're cross Atlantic. Like yes, we are so in. 
And what was it in Qatar? So the first round this year, he he got was it second or th- he was front row, right? Or was it pole? He qualified pole. He came in fourth, right? And, and he was in the top three until like the second to last lap or something. You know, he only yeah. faded slightly just at the end. Well, let's. Keep, well, I think he had a tire management problem, which has been kind of a consistent issue for him right. getting good results. But he, um, this is, keep in mind, this is from a rider who I think got one top 10 finish in the wet in the previous two years. Right. The 18th place was a good finish for Joe before this year. Right. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because... He's he's been a little bit hot and cold this year. I think he's like I think he's well, well even then I think he's still like sixth place in the points. Well, this is a weird year for that, but it is true. He's yeah. he's he's not a serious contender, but it's not outside the realm of possibilities. The commentators are still mentioning his name occasionally when it comes to the championship. Like he he he's in that realm of well he's not a serious contender but like he's there, yeah. But at the same time, again, this is also a crazy year in a year when the world is focused on an international pandemic, where international travel is severely compromised. Being an American in a European-centric sport is a gigantic disadvantage. It's true. Now, you could also mark the rounds where he has done better. His hot rounds are almost universally the ones where he's had John Hopkins there. Yes. So Joe, as a rider, has the talent to ride at the top of Moto2, but he needs the the coaching experience of a wily veteran like John Hopkins, you know, to who is so experienced in MotoGP, but also you know, you know, world just world motorcycle racing of every kind, BSB and Moto America, and all he knows everybody everywhere. He's just a person ingrained in the whole thing. He knows every track there is to know. And he just has the experience and he can get, he has an ability to relate to Joe and get into his head, obviously. Yes. And it seems to be the key part. So this year, Joe's had a couple more fourth place finishes, one actual podium, right? Yes. Which, okay, not setting the world on fire, but when previously he'd only broken the top 10 once, it's a pretty big jump. And he's still on an independent team, although one with a lot more money than he was on before, still an independent team. Now, my problem has been that he's actually had a lot more great qualifyings than he's had great finishes. So in Moto3... It's my favorite writer is Darren Binder. Okay. I love Darren Binder. There was 
a moment. There was a race like three years ago. Maybe it's two years ago. Anyway, this race with Darren Bender. Someone took him out. And before he even hit the gravel, he spun around on his back and gave double middle fingers to the rider that took him out. And he stole my heart. (laughs) 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 And Darren Bender is such a unique rider in that I, I haven't seen anyone ride that aggressively for so long. Darren Bender. Oh, I have. Remy Gardner. That's true. Remy, yeah. Remy does it because he has no choice. Darren does it because there's just something broken in his mind. (laughs) (laughs) Because Darren's problem is... Darren Bender rides like I drink. Yeah, it's true. It's just with with no thought as to the, what the next lap will hold, right? It's just we're going fast now. I can still go fast. <laughs> and so Darren will just all of a sudden run out of tires and inevitably just crashes out of like second or third place with four laps to go. Right. And I know he won a race this year and everything, but he's so, he's so, even though I know he's going to crash, he's so exciting to watch. And, and then he'll be up there in the top four for a few laps. And I'm like, is he going to do it? And Swiggs is like, Peter, you've been burned before. And I'm like, (laughs) I know, but, and so Joe has been doing the same thing. Well, in fairness, I did, I totally called it when he won. Because I, I was like, oh, Darren Bender's in fourth. And you were like, well, yes, but he's going to crash out. And I said, no, but this is like lap three. Like, he's already up there. Yeah, he didn't burn so much tire getting there. That's true. But anyway, um, it's very much a Bender thing to qualify like 14th and then spend the whole race getting to third place and then crash out. Like, both of them do <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, and so uh, I've had the same thing with Joe Roberts because Joe Roberts has crashed out of podium places multiple times this year as well. It's not, not everything is there in place, but it's still such a big jump from last year. The potential has been proven. I don't know that the potential has been proven, but it's been proven that it could be proven, if that makes sense. No, it, it's there. Three poles. I want it to be there so bad. <laughs> three poles in a team that, even though it's called the American Racing Team, has no native English speakers on it. Well, besides Joe. Besides Joe. <laughs> and John, yeah. Like, it, is, it is an independent team. It is an independent team. And next year, he's moving to Ital Trans, which is right. uh, Bedsecki's team. Or not Bedsecki, uh, Bagnaya's team. I thought it was Bastianini's team. And I put it in the text. I, I've been drinking. I sent it to you in the text earlier. Let's, okay, look, this is a great pod as we both <laughs> yeah. pull out our phones to see what you texted to me. And you said, yeah, Bastianini's team. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. See, I'm not taking crazy pills. Yeah, so he's going to 
like a title contenders team next year, which is also this is a top tier team. So if he doesn't do it next year, he really I'll give him three rounds to get used to the bike. But that's that's a, if if it's it doesn't happen bike. by no, it's, round it's four, it's the same bike. He gets used to it in testing. He should now, but uh, but by round four. Like I, he'll be dead to me if we don't if something doesn't happen. I can wait the season. There's nothing else to wait for. <laughs> but what are you talking about? There's so much in Moto Two. Moto Two right now is the most stacked that any 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 racing any racing tier any racing league has ever been the next generation of moto gp champions are all in moto 2 right now it's this was we talked about this earlier this year before the season started in covid and everything about how moto 2 is just unbelievable with talent right now like gp has a bunch of leftover relics who all need to retire this year or people that needed to retire last year. It, there's five standout hopefuls and the rest of the team needs to retire or the rest of the, the rest of the grid needs to retire or is garbage. And moto three is full of nobody. The, Look, the, no, no standout talent. It's all in moto two right now, ready to explode into GP. Let me be clear here. I don't expect Joe Roberts to set the world on fire. I expect him to maybe in 2022, 2023, sign with a MotoGP satellite team. Like a Vintia. And once a year, get a podium. And then beyond that... Start the American GP Riders support group. I agree. That would be a significant thing to be the rider that is at the start of the American return to the sports. That that's his job. That's his role to ride enough GP that he can be the the coach for. Um, oh my gosh. Rocco Landers. There you go. Cause Rocco Landers is is that kind of talent, but probably better. I Joe obviously just destroyed all sorts of stuff when he was young, but not like Rocco Landers, who is like currently managing three championships and really just like unbelievably dominating two of them at the same time. Yeah. How, how 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 does somebody do that, right? You, you have to be just you have to and at age fifteen, right? With international travel, all of them on radically different bikes. I mean, that's something else. And then in your spare time, riding bikes like leader bikes that you're not even physically tall enough for. <laughs> and and kicking people's asses just for fun like riding against like world class talent just it, with no cameras around just just for fun right in in the middle of nowhere 
you know, in, in, in unknown tracks, just practicing with, with people like, um, oh my gosh, twist of the wrist guy. Oh, bro, bro, bro. The books behind me, uh, Keith code, you know, yeah. like world, like geniuses, like Keith code, just, just going over the video, just analyzing every mistake that you've made this. If there is a great American hope, it's Rocco Landers right now. It's not even yeah. close, right? But we we thought through the first three rounds of Moto America this year that maybe Rocco was losing it or the competition was getting better. We found out he had a bent frame. Yeah, he was <laughs> just riding a bike with a bent frame. He didn't realize. <laughs> then he figures it out in like round four. Then round five, he fucks his bike up and the team is able to rebuild it in like four hours and he dominates again. And, and that was a violent crash. You can't tell me the frame wasn't affected in that crash. <laughs> but he'd already but he'd gotten his mojo back from realizing he was riding with a bent frame. Then he got a regular frame. And then he uh, just mentally he's unstoppable right now. Mentally. He just needs more time with those Red Bull rookie bikes, I think. As long, I mean, this is such a weird year. If they have him back for Red Bull Rookies Cup next year, I think he'll be so much more a serious contender in that series because I just mentally, I I don't see how. I mentally he must have like he must have played the best game of any motorcycle racer this year because it certainly wasn't anybody in GP. The season's not even over, and and. Every MotoGP rider's mental head game has been a disaster this year, right? Yeah. Moto2, not all that much better. Moto3, I, they're all just pissing their pants every race. I, You know, Moto America, it's, it's still a weird vibe. I... Mm. Rocco seems like the only racer this year that's just absolutely laser focused every single race every time i've seen him he's he's just there and i i don't know any other riders like that this year everybody just seems shaken and has inconsistent results that are all over the place well even raku will hate this comparison but there is one other rider like raku And it's Mark Marquez. They are, if you watch them both in interviews, they have a very similar personality type in that they are both completely present. Yeah. There's, there's no, they're, they're completely in the moment at all all times and you've never seen a moment when they weren't yeah i agree with that even when even when the like when you look at those interviews where we've known like mark has been furious at a result he's still composed in the moment 
he's still his face is still smiling. He still has an explanation for the race, a breakdown, uh, a cheery thing, uh, a great word for the sponsor, and you just see like the fury raging only in his eyes because <laughs> yeah. he's personally disappointed that he got second instead of winning, right? <laughs> and in Rocco, it's a little bit different because he hasn't had you know that long a career yet, but he it it is obvious that no there there is no force greater than his own inner demons when it comes to the breakdown and the criticism of the race. He's already dealt with it, like the the he he's he's already that good. That the last two laps of the race, if he wasn't winning, he's already broken down every way the race was going to work out. And he's already beat himself up 10 times. So by the time it comes to the breakdown afterwards, it's all been processed. He, you're not going to phase him. Right? I I don't understand how someone at age 15 understands this much about motorcycle racing already. Well, no, it's not even that. It's it's just the fact that, you know, every person can can beat themselves up and kind of get lost in in what ifs and and just kind of stew on it and just not be in the present. But I feel like there's a similarity, there's a parallel between Mark Marquez and Rocco Landers in that I am always here. I am always present. I am always doing what needs to be done in a way that allows them to execute in a way that a normal person can't. Right. It's that thinking ahead. I, I, I can just see in the way that Rocco races how he's thought about the last lap, the current lap, and the next lap all at once, especially those races where he was racing with the bent frame. I, I, it was just as if there was a little text bar next to his helmet, like just working it all out because he couldn't explain how he didn't have, like how he couldn't get the bike to do what. And you could see him trying every little thing. You could see him seeing like, where can I get drive? Where can I do this? Where can I pass? Will it work on this straight? Finally, this time, you, you know, you could see him working it all out. Yeah. And, of course, as soon as he didn't have to work that hard anymore, it, it you know, it, it faded in. But, but you, especially in those first three rounds. And when you're processing that much, like I said, by the time you get to, by the time you get to the end of the race and the microphone's put in your, in your head, you've processed it so much, you know, there's nowhere to be but presence. I th well, I mean, no, you and I can overthink things and then have beers and then not know what the fuck to say about something. But when you're 15 and, you know, your mind's never been sharper, right? You, you remember being 15. You could remember what happened three days ago to insane detail, right? And you could recall things so fast because there's just so much empty space left in your head, right? Like, 
and imagine if all the if imagine if most of the space that was ever taken up in your head up to that point in your life was purely about motorcycle racing how easy might it be to just boom be right there i don't know the kid's impressive to me i think he's i think we still have so much to see from him because you know joe's joe's um 600 super sport victory in motor America was definitely impressive. And that was right at the beginning. I think he was the first moto America super sport champion. Uh, I will admit I was not watching moto America that time. I think it was the first year of moto America, but I could be wrong. Anyway. Um, cause moto America has been going for, I mean, it's been a minute, but not that. Twenty fifteen. It's tough to say. I, th- I thought it was fourteen. I think it's since like six year. But anyway, not important. I think he was. I think his six hundred victory was the first year for six hundred. I could be wrong there. I could Google it also, but you know. Meh, we're not we're not pausing much and editing these episodes. But so back to Joe. Next year, top tier team. And there's evidence that he's a top tier talent. He's keeping uh, does here's my question. John Ho- he's keeping okay. John Hopkins. He's keeping John. That's the key part for me. Because John Hopkins seems to be the thing that gives him that Rocco-like focus. That seems to be the part, the person that can get into his psyche and get him to do what he needs to do on the track. On those rounds that he doesn't have, John, he's not qualifying well. He's still starting and then making up places from where he starts on the grid, but he's not doing much more than that. Like... When when he goes to rounds without his coach, he qualifies somewhere between 14th and 8th. And he ends up somewhere like one or two places better than that. You know, he outrides his qualifying performance. He brings something to Sunday. But it's not what happens when he has his coach. It's, it's just not even close. Yeah. Yeah, every time John Hopkins has not been there, and as far as I know, every time he hasn't been there, it's because he's been coaching Rocco. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. There's a reason ex-MotoGP talent is interested in these two riders, specifically. I think, yeah, when he... he, uh, joins the Tal Trans, I think he's going to get a better, well, he's in a better, well-funded team. And honestly, I think the American racing team is more about branding than actual Americanness. It's, it's not an American team in any way whatsoever, but it's interesting from a branding perspective, but ultimately if He's keeping John Hopkins, and I hope to God they have a better they have a better uh, tire guy who can explain 
Because, look, Joe Roberts has lost, like, two or three podiums just off of tire choice. You say that, but tire choice is something so easy to criticize after the fact. Yeah. It's called objectivism. No, because... (laughs) (laughs) Listen. Like... It, it's like it's okay. It's like the NFL when coaches have to make the call of of kicking it in or the two point conversion or you know the the half field punt, right? No, it's not controversial at all. It's, it's ex- no, it's exactly the same thing. If you make the right call, everyone goes, "This coach is a genius." If you make the wrong call, people go, "You fucking." Idiot, how could you have not known no, the right choice? That's bullshit. No, I don't think it is. It's total bullshit. And it's not like when these teams make the choice, they know the choice that every other team is making as well, unless they make a last minute tire choice. By the time we're sitting down to watch the racing results, right? These teams, keep in mind, are all just in their own pits and they're turning in and telling reporting what their tire choices are. They're not talking to the garage next to them going, well, what choice are you making? Well, we're going with the mediums. Oh, really? That's interesting. Let me convert. Let me, let me go over to Ducati here and see what they're doing. No, are you telling me that it requires a decision based on their skill, based on the data they're getting. And also just based off what the rider is feeling. They're all on the same bike. They may be making minor changes to swing arm length, to gear ratio, to whatever, but there's not much changing. And looking at, yes, hindsight is 2020 to see what the correct answer was. Knowledge is being able to make the correct prediction up front. This is totally an achievable thing. Apparently, Mark Marquez can crush everybody every time with the exact correct tire choice every single time in mixed conditions. There is a skill and a knowledge base and a talent to it. And Joe Roberts didn't have the right call several times when five or six people in front of him who are all front runners for the championship did each time. See, this is why There's I don't think it here. really has as much to do with tires as I think it has to do with the coaching. And it here's why when the two come together, it's lethal. So you get someone like John Hopkins who will give you know you take a writer like Joe who is capable, but is starting to move into areas where no American writer has been recently, right? So he's going to be unsure of himself. You get someone like John Hopkins involved who can say, listen, I know you feel more comfortable on this tire choice. I know you can do it on the softs. Right or the mediums or the hards or whatever it is that makes the conditions a little trickier, right? But the tires will last longer, right? Say, I know you can do it. Do these couple things on these corners. 
even if it's real or not, it gives Joe that mental edge to go, oh, I can do it. I can outride my own skill in this weird way, right? And then it makes those choices make sense for the writer. And then you can go for the bull tire choices that'll help you make fast fucking laps, right? I think that's the dynamic. But when it comes to, in the moment, what Joe is feeling, what the conditions are, what he's used to, what he thinks he can make consistent tire things on, I think they're making completely logical choices. They just need that person in there that has knowledge of that whole league above what they've done, that person that knows what it takes to reach beyond your current skills and knows the language, the words to communicate to him, what to put in his head to get him to perform at that absolute peak. Cause that's what we're talking about. That one and a half percent to just push you to the absolute peak every single time, even in moto two, that's what it takes. And I think it takes like a moto GP veteran to talk in his ear and go, Hey, why don't you just do these couple things on these corners? I think you can go with this other tire choice. And that's where it comes from. I think the tire guy as it's existing in the team is making completely logical choices outside of that magical X factor that, that John Hopkins brings to the team. Yeah. It's, it's about saying, okay, there's the chicane here and you cannot take the, the best inside line with a soft tire on lap 20 but if you just say this is going to be a shit corner every lap of the race then you can gain you know half a second on this section of the track and your tires aren't going to degrade across the whole race but also someone like john hopkins might know if he tells like joe to just go easy on this one single corner and he can hit it hard everywhere else maybe it's not even real Maybe it just gives Joe the false confidence that it takes to make that sort of like Indiana Jones and and the Last Crusade like leap of faith over the cap, you know, the chasm, right? And it <laughs> just works, right? Okay, we're well. If we're going into Indiana Jones references, I think this might be a good place to stop. <laughs> Well, I well, I, we we should we should round up a few emails here. We're only at about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 40 tops. We we could wrap up a few emails. Okay. Cuz people bothered to send them. Okay. Uh, well, what do we have here? Um The only new email I have is the one that you just sent me uh, from. Oh, it's forwarded, so I don't see the name. Uh, from Scott from Nova Scotia. This was kind of a frivolous email, but it, <laughs> it was. Really was. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> silly hold on uh, no there were there were other emails too well okay i'll go into this one okay <laughs> uh 
So, so Scott from Nova Scotia said, um, you know, he said, come on up boys. Once this COVID thing clears up and me and the bandit would be glad to show you around our beautiful province. This email is really only worth noting because late at night with booze in me, I felt the need to reply a couple times. And I told him like, oh, hell yeah. Well, you know, it's been like nearly 10 years since I've been up there and I hope the liquor chick survived COVID. We got to reenact the chase scenes from countdown to liquor day in Halifax. Got to go to Stanfest and Kemp Shore and get drunk singing songs till the sun comes up. Got to get in a fight doing anything in Sydney and then get pizza burgers <laughs> because these are all the most Nova Scotian things you can possibly do. And then, like a madman, he responds to me that he's like, yeah, sounds good. I'll check on the liquor chick. I have a friend from down there. Because, <laughs> okay, if you don't know anything about Nova Scotia, the thing you need to know is that there's this fried chicken restaurant. And it's off the side of, like, the only, like, major, uh, the like, Trans-Canada Highway that goes through fucking Nova Scotia. And it's near where, because um, Nova Scotia is actually like made of, um, there's this mainland Nova Scotia that connects to the continent by this small little land bridge. And then there's Cape Breton, which is the, an, an island north of the, the land mass. And so there's a big bridge that connects the two. Not far from there. So in order to get to Cape Breton, which is like 35% of Nova Scotia, you've got to go, you've got to drive past the Lickachick essentially. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you do, okay? <laughs> and it's good fried chicken, right? The, their whole thing is they give you they, they do fried chicken and then they give you like a cup of honey to drizzle on it, right? This is the whole thing. And also the other great thing about the Lick a Chick is um there's there's a there's a there's an ice cream place attached to it called like the Lick a Cone or the Lick a something. I don't know. <laughs> and, and it's just like a sort of nondescript red building and it, like is this like it's generic, suspect like like you might it looks like you might get sick but i mean it's all like three to four hundred degree fryer oil you're not gonna get sick it's fucking is this, fine is this like um like uh random brighton seaside nondescript like fish, uh, fish and chip shop style branding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not far. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a little sketchy, like from the way it looks. But I'll tell you what, man. Like, there's always a couple bikes out in front of it, like people doing a trip or something. It's it's a destination. Here's how much of a destination it is. The last time I went to Nova Scotia, I flew into to Halifax, and I got a cab. And I was on my way to Canso, which is the Canso is the most um, the most eastern part of the of the of the North American continent. It's literally the end of the earth, right? Um, but as I was going up to Canso, uh, the the airport taxi. Uh, you know, it was like, "Where are you going?" I'm like, "Up to Canso," and he's like, "I'll drop you off at the Lickachick." <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. 
Like, but, but the thing is, is like, what I didn't know was like, that was actually like the official drop off point. Like, they're like, yeah, we don't go further than that. Cause like after that, you're good. But I, I got, I had someone pick me up there and, and it was all good. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a what you can Google it. Like, bring it, Google it. <laughs> I kind of went into a Canadian accent right there, a little nervous. Google it, boy. Come on. <laughs> okay, we are getting drunk now, but I just have to wait. We, I, I okay. I, I haven't put pictures on the last couple episodes, but we've got to put a picture of the lick a chick up in the show notes for this week. It it's delicious, you know. It's just. I think across the street there's like a Tim Hortons and like a McDonald's or something now, but the lick a chick itself. Um, I mean, it's 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 right near. Um, Well, hold on. Is the is the lick a chick? I can't remember now. Uh, now I'm second guessing myself. Is the lick a chick on the Nova Scotian side or the Cape Breton side? I can't remember. The lick a chick might even be in Cape Breton. Yeah, that's it. Oh, well done, Swigs, with that. Yeah, this is <laughs> <laughs> like for this this fried chicken place in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Google didn't just bring up a picture. It brought up pages of fucking <laughs> pictures. Uh, if you go if you go down, down one more, down one more, down one more, over, over, now over, over. Yeah, that's how it looks from the road. <laughs> <laughs> Was I misrepresenting this in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, I hope it's still there. It, oh, you got, you got. We no, we need a picture of the of the chicken in the box there. If you go over a few more, there, go over. Yeah. Oh God, looks so good. Look, you got you got fries with the gravy there, so it's it's fried chicken and poutine, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Nova Scotia to find a way to make fried chicken like even worse. The fried chicken and poutine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's find another email. Uh, <laughs> this episode is devoted way too much talk. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, do we have any other ones? I'm sure there was. Um. I forwarded you at least two that people sent to you me. You sent me one. Oh, no, I sent you two. Nope. Um, oh, we actually, well, this is one we didn't get to last week, but we'll talk about uh, from My Motorbike Obsession sent us an email. Dad, that was this week. Was that this week? That was this week. Yeah. Uh, oh, how did I forget about Mike? Yeah. He sent us a... a, a okay. Not Mike, Matt. Matt, whatever. <laughs> I mean, not whatever, but... Okay. <laughs> I am drunk now, but okay. All right. So, uh, Mike... Uh, or... God, not... Fuck. <laughs> Matt. Okay. From Mike. Matt from My Motorbike Obsessions. All right. 
let's put a timer on this episode. Um, he said, uh, so great to have you back. I enjoyed your pod, your first podcast back. I was thrilled to hear about the scooters, the twist slash, uh, the, 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 the twist select slash grip shift Stella and Vespa scooters are friggin' cool. I totally got what you were saying about zipping around on small CC rides like that. I have been loving my 50 CC cub for the same reasons. With this week's show, I dug your choice of best bike. I love the 80s slash early 90s sport bikes. I have fun on my 96 XJR 400R for similar reasons to the FZR 400. It sucks in the city. A That's a standalone sentence, by the way. It's not great marketing, but we'll move on. Uh, a 400cc inline four that is crippled speeds of 25 miles an hour max really tests your patience. The Cub is much better for most riding in my neck of the woods. Just for fun, here's a link to an auction page for used Honda gyros later. And apparently... You can, in Japan, buy a Honda Gyro for like $900 in good condition. Oh, I've, yeah, or well, cheaper than that. I, I, yeah, it seems that really good ones top out at about $1,000. Well, it's hard to say because it's an auction site because some of them were like, like $2,000, but they were kind of like really specially decked out ones. But for most decent ones, good condition, it's about $1,000. So we got to think like $1,000 to import it or something. I mean, we could, we, I think $2,200 is achievable for these, but I'd almost rather kind of get some wrecked ones and then just do fix them ourselves. Well, if the base price to actually purchase in Japan is a thousand dollars, let's say another, yeah, maybe move that to 900 us. Well, well let's say, no, let's say a thousand dollars in Japan after currency, let's say another hundred dollars for whatever, like actual purchase fees and taxes in Japan plus $500 to ship plus another two to 300 for dealer fees and registering it in the U S why would we register 49 CC Japanese import canopy scooters? <laughs> well, I guess you really what, just what, need do, do you really think it's worth the hassle <laughs> of getting these Japanese titles transferred over for 49 CC vehicles that are not required to be registered to begin with? Well, technically in Col- well, this is the bullshit. Like technically in Colorado, you do need a scooter sticker, like a tax sticker, which does require you to have an MCO. Uh, this is heavily debatable. <laughs> like to the letter of the law, maybe is it enforced? No, not in any way, shape, or form. Second. That's true. There were there were actually several people at the DMV who looked at me like a crazy person 
when I registered. Yeah. The Dude, when I bought the Vespa, he asked me, are you going to register it? Because he was hoping he could do less paperwork. Because he's like, a lot of people don't. Like, there's no consequence to not registering <laughs> this. Like, no one's going to care. He let me test drive it with no plate on it. And we're talking about something that does 60 miles an hour. And he was just like, just just don't get on the highway. Like, just, just, just stay on, like, surface streets and shit. Just, it's fine. <laughs> Right? If these things are actually just 49 cc's, and not even 49 cc two stroke, 49 cc four stroke, Honda Metropolitan Power with more weight, like nobody cares. Nobody thinks this is something that that needs plated or registered. And on top of that, it's Japanese. Just, yeah, it's fine. No, let don't take into account that hundred and fifty. We got we let's say a thousand dollars to buy it. I think five hundred dollars to ship it is realistic if both of them being shipped at the same time. A thousand dollars to ship two might be realistic. So I think we're looking at sixteen hundred bucks each. About. Which is a lot of money to pay for something so stupid, but there's something so endearing about these vehicles. I don't know. I really want to hold out for a fully dominosed. I think we can just. I think we could buy ourselves get some some dominoes decals and with a little bit of paint here no, and some vinyl got, wrapping there. It's got to be original. It's gotta we could be, recreate an original Domino's like I, no, livery. I, I, wanna, I want an authentic Domino's used Honda Gyro that has delivered at least ten thousand pizzas. This is about the history. This is <laughs> this is important. Okay. <laughs> I guess. All right, we're we're getting dangerously close to two hours here. So, uh, is there are, are there any other emails, or are we good? Uh, I think we're good. Okay. All right. Let's let's cut off this this recorded disaster <laughs> while we still can. So, so here we go, everybody. I'm gonna load my sound effects back up. So, what we're gonna do now is sign out. Something I've neglected to do for the last few episodes is mention that if you want to send an email, I don't recommend it, but if you want to send an email to us, send those emails to nokomotopodcast.com. Or if you want them to just Nokomoto go to... Nokomoto Podcast. No, there's it's contact at nokomotopodcast.com. That's true, except I was going to say... Before you so rudely interrupted me, if you wanted those emails to go to one of us specifically, you can send them to Swiggy at NoKomodoPodcast.com or MotoGPete at NoKomodoPodcast.com or just simply contact at NoKomodoPodcast.com. I mentioned that because the majority of emails that we got this week were just sent to MotoGPete at NoKomodoPodcast.com. So it is as drunk as I am, I was actually making complete sense and totally with it, Swigs.
So that's the distinction. Just just information for you there. So uh, we recommend sending them to contact at nokomotopodcast.com because it'll be less work for us each to know that those emails actually exist and it's more likely that they'll get read. So with that, it's time to sign off, reminding everyone to stay safe and stay tuned. And are you ready to run the outro swigs? Let's do it. Okay. And I don't want to die. 